0: Since we've been in the book of Philippians, due to other things that have been going on, I've been away. But in the past two messages, I've spoken to you about that great change that took place in the Apostle Paul's life. The change that took him from the place of being a self-righteous Pharisee to one who was willing to, to give up everything in order to claim the righteousness of God. Paul had a balance sheet in his life, and what he had been doing... Was counting all the wrong things as assets. And he came to the realization that that is not the righteousness that God requires. He looked at his birth, he looked at his heritage, he looked at his nationality, his learning, his abilities, and his self confidence. Everything that he thought would commend him to God, he had to realize that that amounted to nothing in God's accounting. God's economy is different than man's economy. And as much as we want to squeeze ourselves in and think that we really count for something and our works count for something, it's really totally worthless without Jesus Christ. Most people really never come to that to that realization, even those who are devout and who are uh, very highly religious, they're very stubborn when it comes to this idea of giving up their self-confidence. It's not something that's natural to us. We we don't like it. We don't want to do it. And consequently, most people don't do it. And what they'd rather do is to uh, structure a God who fits their mold. And they've chosen their own God, and the true God, unfortunately, has not chosen them. Well, in the first part of this chapter, there's one verse here that stands out as the pinnacle of right thinking. This is right doctrine. And it's a statement here that expresses a profound truth in only 32 words. One of the most, well, really, the profound truth of the Bible. It has so many implications. We're using this as a text verse for tonight's message. This is verse number, verse number 9 of Philippians chapter 3. Let's stand with me as we read God's Word. And we'll just read that one verse tonight. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse number 9. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Wednesday night. We thank you for people who come out for a prayer meeting. So we think about all the problems that are going on in the world and difficulties that are even in the church and families that have problems and health issues, so many different things. Lord, we thank you that your people are aware of these things and we pray for these things. You are a great God who hears and answers prayer we ask you, Lord, as we consider your word tonight, you give us understanding. And we thank you for Jesus Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Blessing this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's read that verse one more time. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now, that one verse actually sums up Paul's doctrine. That principle that's expressed in that verse is so confounding that we find numerous examples in the Scripture where there are people who really had great difficulty coming to grips with this statement. Uh, Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount was to drive people actually to this principle. His demands were so high that the result of hearing his words, believing his message, would leave people no other choice than to seek righteousness of God, which is by faith. Now, numerous times I've use the rich young ruler as examples in my messages. And even though Philippians chapter 3, verse number 9, was not written at the time that Jesus spoke to that young ruler, yet here was a man that was confounded by that truth. Nicodemus was another person who was confounded by the truth that Paul expresses in these words. The scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus argued with and debated with and Paul debated with from so many different times, they could not come to grips with this. And even the Apostle Paul himself couldn't until God struck him down on the road to Damascus and opened his eyes up to this truth. And the same thing has been true down through history. Martin Luther, the great theologian of the Reformation, locked himself away until he could arrive at the truth of this passage and others that are similar to it that we find in the book of Romans. And the Reformation started because this truth is so profound that what it actually did was to upset over 1,000 years of religious thinking. Martin Luther came to the truth. He found the truth. While those in Roman Catholicism today, which, Roman, which uh, Martin Luther came out of, still refuse to believe the truth of that statement. The truth of this passage is as old as the oldest book in the Bible. Job asked the question that this verse answers. He said, How shall man be just with God? And the answer to that question hasn't changed in all the history of the world. The answer has always been the same as Philippians 3 verse 9. It is the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now tonight I want to talk to you about that statement. I mean you've heard uh, bits and pieces of what I'm going to say tonight in many different messages. Uh, This is not a foreign topic to us. But this evening, I want to sort of tie all of our statements together as we talk about this great doctrine of the faith. And this is the doctrine that framed the debate of the Reformation, even though the Apostle Paul and Baptist had already been teaching it for many, many years, and they learned it from the master teacher, Jesus. Now, I have a fairly short message on this tonight. I probably won't make you angry. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit short on it tonight because we're going to take up this subject numerous times as we go through the Sermon on the Mount because it's an underlying theme. So let's begin tonight by talking, first of all, about the meaning of righteousness. If you look up the word righteous or righteousness in the dictionary, you come up with a very simple definition. Usually you'll find something like this Righteousness means morality, righteousness is morality or conforming to a standard of morality. But the problem with that definition is that it really doesn't say anything at all about what the standard is. And the confusion about righteousness is where does it come from? Uh, how can I get it? What kind of righteousness is acceptable? Now, the standard of righteousness, there is one that God will accept. But unfortunately, for those who think otherwise, that standard that God will accept is not one that's actually achievable by humans. Now, most have the idea that there's only one type of righteousness. There's one type of righteousness, all of it is the same type of righteousness, and some have more of this righteousness than others. If we travel a few miles down the road to uh, San Francisco or in that area, we could visit uh, San Quentin, prison at San Quentin. And you could go in there to Death Death Row and you'd see various notorious criminals there, and we would look at those people, and most people would judge, and they would say, well, that, those people that are in there are very low on their count of righteousness. And go to the Santa Rosa jail, and we can find some people there that don't merit the hard labor that they have at San Quentin. And we look at them and say, well, they have maybe just a little bit more Righteousness. We can investigate some other people, maybe some people that we think are, you know, a little bit low class. They like to get drunk. uh, They like to party all the time. They take recreational drugs or whatever. And they're a little bit higher on the scale of righteousness. Then we go into the better neighborhoods, and we find people there that have good jobs. They keep their houses clean. They mow their lawns regularly. They vote in elections. They perform their civic duties. And we think, well, they have accumulated even a little bit more righteousness but then finally, we come to devout church people, people that attend church every week. They give their money. There are programs that they have for the poor. They do all of that. Generally, they have no moral issues in their lives, and uh, we would say they're morally unquestionable. And we look at all that, and we realize that that, that is good. I mean, that's someone, who's better, that's someone who's better than these others, but there's yet someone who is better still. That's Jesus, and he has the most righteousness He has more righteousness than any of us. His cup is full of righteousness. And so essentially what we've done, we have constructed a sliding scale of righteousness. And that's what I talked a little bit about on Sunday morning. We have this sliding scale in which all righteousness is equal. It's just that some people have more righteousness than others. That's a false idea of righteousness, Now the standard is not, can I get enough righteousness that I can be equal to Jesus? Or can he give me some of his righteousness so that I can add it to mine and thereby I can keep my cup full and I can be acceptable to God? The problem here is that our righteousness and Christ's righteousness are two totally different things. You can't mix and match righteousness. No matter how righteous that we uh, think that we are and how much righteousness that we can accumulate, none of what we have matters with God. We can save up as much as we can get and it's never going to get us to heaven because our righteousness is not a valid method of exchange in God's kingdom or in God's economy. It's just like playing Monopoly. I mean, if you play Monopoly and you're the one who ends up with all the houses and all the hotels and a fistful of money, you sit there after the game's over and you gleefully raise your hands and say, oh, I'm rich, I'm rich. And then you take all of that money and you go out and you want to buy a real piece of property because you think that you can afford it. And so you go and you hand over that money to the seller of the house and you say, here's your money, let me move in. Well, he's going to look at you like you're crazy. I mean, he will take your monopoly money and they'll tear it into pieces and then he'll tell you that you're a psycho. And the reason is because that money doesn't count. It doesn't count in this economy. You can't use monopoly money. And it's the same thing with righteousness. When you go to purchase your home in heaven, so to speak, your righteousness doesn't count. Your righteousness is monopoly money. And that's what Paul means when he says in Romans, there is none righteous, no not one." Does that mean that nobody's ever done a good deed? That's not what he's saying at all, because we know people do lots of good things. All he's saying is that that those good deeds that we do, that righteousness, is monopoly money. It doesn't count. So God's righteousness and our righteousness are just totally different things. And no matter how much of our righteousness that we accumulate, God is never going to accept it. Now, Paul realized that, and that's why you can go back to the beginning of this chapter. We studied there for a few weeks about all of these things that Paul had in his life, and he listed all the good things in that first part of the chapter, and he said, as far as being righteous with God, all of these things that I have, all of the things that I've done, all of it is nothing but loss. But that's not all that is meant by righteousness. I wanted to get that part out of the way first, that... So that we can understand what Paul means when he uses that term righteousness. It's, It's to meet God's standard of morality and holiness in a way that God will accept. Now, there's still other ways that Paul uses the word righteousness. Now, the first one that we look at here is the justice of God's law. The enforcement of God's law is God's justice in action. And so we can say that it is righteous... For God to enforce his law, that's vindication of God's character. You see, God's law is the standard, and the standard, when it's not enforced, means that God no longer has a law. If God doesn't enforce his standard, he doesn't have a law. As someone has said, you just have a bunch of suggestions. Law has to have teeth. And unfortunately for everyone in the world today, we've all fallen short of God's God's law. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so that means, according to a just law, then there has to be punishment. But what God has done, he's provided a means by which the law can be satisfied. And so we could also say that it is righteous for God to allow a substitute. It's righteous for God to permit Christ to satisfy the demands of the law for us and then to take the punishment of our sins upon him. So righteousness, then, first of all, includes God's justice in imposing a penalty of the law. Now, secondly, righteousness is the obedience to the law. Now, this is our conformity to the law. The requirement of the law is that we must obey all of its precepts perfectly to the very minutest detail. That is the demand of God's law. Now, the Scriptures comment on that, about the possibility of us doing it, and that's in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20, where the writer says, "...for there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not." So righteousness can't come by the law because there's no one who is able to keep the laws of God perfectly. God's righteousness, then, is conformity to his law to carry out a sentence, and man's righteousness is to obey God's law perfectly. And so that is a way, another way, that God's righteousness and man's righteousness is not the same thing. Now, secondly, then, I want to look at the means of righteousness, now, we have this gaping problem that no matter how hard that we try, no matter how much of this righteousness that we accumulate of our own, we could never pile it high enough that we could get into heaven. I mean, you could just as likely go out here and start stacking milk crates on top of one another, trying to get into outer space, as to take your righteousness and try to put it all together and to get into heaven. You can't do it by keeping up commandments. Now, that was Martin Luther's problem. He kept trying this, and he kept trying to purify himself. He beat himself and tried to bring himself into subjection. But as soon as he thought that he had this thing conquered, then there would be that one evil thought that would slip through. And when that one little evil thought gets through, when you're trying to maintain your righteousness, then all of it goes out the window. It's all done for. I mean, it cancels out every righteous thing that you've ever done because righteousness has to be perfect. Now, some people think that what Christ did was he came to the world to just lighten the load of the law. And what Jesus did was to kick the law back into oblivion and... So he says, well, I've come to change things. I've come to do something different, make it easier for you. But what Jesus actually did was not to do away with the law. We find that very clearly taught in in places where Paul speaks on this issue. He didn't come to do away with the law, but what Jesus came to do, he actually tightened up the law. I mean, he he made it so there's absolutely no wiggle room whatsoever in the law. Uh, I'll talk about this some when we get into some more into the Sermon on the Mount but that's, uh, and maybe even this Sunday, that one of the things that scribes and Pharisees tried to do, they tried to put wiggle room in the law by, by making up their own laws. And I'll, I'll explain the problem of that on Sunday morning. But some people then think that Jesus came to lighten that load of the law. But remember what we talked about on Sunday morning, this past Sunday morning, when we talked about the issue of adultery, and when Jesus addressed that? In the Sermon on the Mount... In Matthew chapter 5, he said, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already with her in his heart. So what Jesus did there, he raised the bar. And as I said at the beginning, the Sermon on the Mount is intended to drive us to this position that we have no confidence in our flesh. And so what we do is we rule out all self-help. And you can go to the bookstore and you find all kinds of self-help books, but read all that you want. Self-help is not going to do you any good. You can't find your answer there. And we've all heard that saying, God helps people who helps themselves. And people think, well, that's in the Bible. God helps people who helps themselves. But the truth of it is, God helps people who cannot help themselves. So what is God's means of righteousness? How does God make us righteous? Well, we start with this, the life and the death of Christ. And God's righteousness includes both of those things. Neither one of them by itself is sufficient. Now let's talk about Christ's life first. Paul's statement here in Philippians chapter 3 is, "...and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ." There is a righteousness that is obtained by faith, But it's not a part to the obedience of the law. It's not apart from obedience to the law. Now, the, the thing is, though, we're not talking about our obedience to the law. The difference is it must be Christ's obedience of the law. Now, that makes Christ's life necessary for our salvation because in the end, we do have to have righteousness. And God's not going to let us into heaven without righteousness. And the way that Christ solved that problem for us is through his life. So Jesus came into the world not merely to die, but he also came to subject himself to God's law. Now, the one who made the law said then, I will subject myself or I will live by that law. And so Jesus took this whole list of commandments and he lived by them. He kept every one of them perfectly. Now, some people think that the Ten Commandments is just ten simple, short statements But really, the Ten Commandments comprehend every single type of sin that you can imagine. I mean, no matter what kind of sin that you might commit, no matter what kinds of things you might think about, all of that is comprehended in the Ten Commandments. And so Jesus not only kept Ten Commandments, but he kept thousands of commandments. Because the Bible says that he was tempted in all ways that were tempted, and yet Jesus never committed one sin. He never failed and so what Jesus did then, he earned what we call positive righteousness. Positive righteousness is earned by Christ by his active obedience to God's law. Now, that's the thing that helps our total failure. failure. He substitutes for our failures. He earned righteousness that we couldn't earn on our own. But we still have the problem, though, and that is how has that righteousness become our righteousness? And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. So here we have Christ that through his sinless life, earned righteousness for us. But the next problem that we have is the consequences of the, of, the, of the sins that we've already committed. And what I mean is that if you could stop sinning today, if you never committed another sin for the rest of your life, you couldn't go to heaven. And the reason you can't is because something still has to be done about those past sins. I mean, there's all those things. If you cum- accumulated up to this point, what are you going to do about those? Those have to be taken care of. So God's righteousness then is enforcing, is what he does when he enforces his law. And so, as stated in the Scripture, the penalty for breaking God's law is death. Now, there's a lot of people who don't believe in the death penalty, uh, but they didn't get the idea from God's Word because God definitely believes in the death penalty. In fact, he believes it so strongly that even for what we call small sins, they merit death. And so physical death and spiritual death as a result of sin. So that's where Christ's death comes in. What he did was to keep God's law perfectly, which means that, I mean, if you look at his life and everything that Christ did, keeping God's law perfectly, we should say about him that he should escape death. The wages of sin is death, and you commit no sin, then you should escape death. And so it's not... Right, that a righteous man ought to die. And so that's really the sham of Christ's crucifixion is because they condemned an innocent man. But Jesus didn't stay that way. Now hear me out on this. Jesus didn't stay that way. He didn't stay innocent because when they mounted him on that cross, he was about to do something. See, what happened is that Christ had already made a pact. He made a covenant with his Father in which he agreed that he would gather up all of the sins of everyone who would ever believe in him, everything that we've ever committed. And the agreement said that he would take the full fury of God's wrath against sin and that Jesus himself would be punished for those sins. And the agreement was that when Christ did this, that God in turn would accept that as punishment for our sins and God agrees that he will punish no one for whom Christ has given his life or anyone who would trust in him. So the agreement said that whatever Christ did on the cross, that would be full punishment, that would be full satisfaction to God's law. So now we have then a life by which he earned righteousness, and that's what God required. He perfectly met God's standard of righteousness, and so that takes care of one requirement. We have righteousness taken care of. The standard has been met, so that's one requirement that we have to have. Then his death on the cross took the punishment for our sins. And that meets another standard that God imposed. There has to be a penalty for the breaking of his law. And so Christ, being punished for it, took our sin debt for us. So that satisfies God. That meets his other requirement. So righteousness is earned. The penalty is paid. But we still have that other problem. And that is that we haven't yet received the benefit of it. The righteousness is earned, but that righteousness is not ours yet. The penalty has been paid but our pardon hasn't been given to us yet. And so there has to be a way that we can obtain this, that we can take care of this problem and answer Job's question, how can a man be just with God? And so next comes grace bestowed and the gospel believed. Grace is the answer to this. You see, God is is under no obligation to do anything for anyone. Justice is very simple. You broke God's law. Now you have to be punished for it. But God's gracious. And so God in his mercy and his kindness was not content that he would let us die in sin. And though he had every right to condemn every single member of the human race, God graciously provided a means by which we could be pardoned. And he did that through the death of another who could stand in our place. So grace provided the means grace provided the means by which we could be righteous in faith then is the instrument by which we receive god's grace so we can say then that the gospel the message of jesus christ what he did on the cross that's what we call grace on parade and that's when we believe that those of us who merit death were guilty and were defiled were helpless when we realize that our righteousness is worthless in the sight of god it amounts for nothing Believing that Christ died to save us from the just penalty of our sins, that is the way, that faith is the way that God's righteousness is appropriated to us. And so this earned righteousness of Christ, the obedience of his perfect life, that becomes ours through faith. And so faith is the vehicle by which God transfers his righteousness to us. Now, that's what Paul means when he says, and be found in Christ. When he says, I am found in Christ, what he means is that Christ's righteousness has been transferred to him, and it came to him through faith. And so now he's glad. He will gladly give up all of these other things, give up everything that he is in his flesh. And so what he's done then, he's lost all of that to be found in Christ. And that is essentially what it means to be justified by faith. How can a man be just with God? It can't be by anything that he can do. Righteousness is not earned by that. It has to be by what Christ has done. And it comes through Christ's obedient life and his punishing death on the cross. Now, receiving that through faith is the way that a man is just with God. And so when Paul discovered that, he he wouldn't, nor could, He couldn't, he wouldn't turn back. He's not going to depart from that principle. And when Luther discovered this, that's what became the rallying cry of the Reformation. Sole fide, faith alone. Sole gratia, grace alone. And that's how that we become just with God. So you put everything else, everything that we are, into the lost column because this is the righteousness which is of God by faith. And so then we have the meaning of righteousness and the means of righteousness But then there's one other aspect that I want to speak of, and that is the measure of righteousness. How much righteousness do we have? When we have received Christ by faith, how much righteousness do we have? Now, that's not a trivial nor an unimportant question for us, because what we have through Christ is not the bare minimum. What we have is not just enough, and so we have to be very careful that we don't expend this righteousness and we use it all up. And, you know, that's the problem of people who misunderstand the the complete doctrine. I mean, those who are continually trying to mix their righteousness with Christ's righteousness are always going to run into the problem. They're always in danger of running short of having enough righteousness to keep their cup full. So what is the measure of righteousness? Well, first, it exceeds our ability. And that ought to be abundantly clear, but what I've already said... When I have received Christ's righteousness, God doesn't say, well, I see today that you forgot to read the Bible. So what you need to do is that you need to put in a little extra time in order to fill your cup back up. And God doesn't tomorrow morning say, well, I see that you didn't go to church on Wednesday night. So what you need to do is you need to get down to some serious prayer and fill that cup back up. That is exactly the Roman Catholic idea of righteousness. If I run short of it, then the priest will give me enough that I can do some makeup work. I mean, I I can do a do-over, and so I can keep my cup full of righteousness. Friends, if you're depending on that type of righteousness, you're always going to come up short. And that is a fundamental misunderstanding of the first point that I made tonight. Hail Marys and Our Fathers and rosary beads are what? Monopoly money. It's monopoly money in God's accounting. So Jesus said... In Matthew 5, this is also Sermon on the Mount. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Right from the Sermon on the Mount. So the righteousness then that we need of Christ exceeds all of our abilities. And it exceeds our abilities both before and after salvation. Now, that means that when God looks at me, he never for a moment considers what I have done. He's not looking at what I have done to count me righteous. He's always looking at what Christ did, because Christ has become my righteousness. So God considers that every single law that he ever gave, all laws that he ever gave, have been satisfied for me by Jesus Christ. That's his righteousness. Now, secondly, then, it excels in Christ's ability. It exceeds my ability because it excels in Christ's ability. So what Jesus has done, he, he's done what I could never do. And folks, this is something that we have to subject ourselves to. We, we don't have a choice in this matter. We are in, in subjection to God's law. We live under God's law, and there's nobody that says, well, I'd like to excuse myself from God's law. You don't have the option of doing that. You have to live by God's law. Now, many people have this fantasy existence in which they've decided that they're the ones who make up the rules. And so they have their man-made rules, they live by their rules, and so if they can meet their rules, then that means that they're actually good and righteous people after all. And they convince themselves of that, and so that's how the world just blows Christianity off. And what it does, it redefines all the standards. Well, at least Paul had this much sense. He knew that there is a righteous and there's a holy God. He knew that he had to be just with God. He even knew so much that he acknowledged that God's law is right, that God's lit, written law is right. Now, most people today won't even acknowledge that. I mean, people don't even think the Bible is true anymore. used to be in America, if you asked people, is the Bible true, is the Bible infallible, is it errant?" then everybody would raise their hand and say yes. I mean, the vast majority of people would say that. But today... The majority of people don't believe the Bible is true. You can, you, you know, there are things in the Bible that are wrong, and, and we can take which parts that we like and leave the others alone. Well, Paul had this much understanding that he knew that he had to keep God's law, and to his thinking, that's exactly what he had done. He had kept God's law. Well, he had an understanding of it, but his understanding was deficient. And that's true of every single person who seeks righteousness by his own abilities. He has some understanding, but his understanding is deficient. The measure of righteousness is that God's righteousness is the only means by which we can keep that cup full. And because it is full, perfect righteousness, our cup is always full. The righteousness is never depleted. You you can't get it down to where you have nine-tenths righteousness or eight-tenths or whatever or, or half of the righteousness. You always have all of the righteousness because it's Christ's righteousness that's been transferred to you. And so that makes us perfect in that sense in the eyes of God. So unless his ability excels our ability, we were forever lost because we could never deliver enough of our own righteousness. So the question again is how can a man be just with God? And here's the answer to it. Only by the righteousness of Christ. This is the righteousness of God, which is by faith. That's the only way we'll ever be just with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a few minutes that we've had to spend in your word. And, uh, Lord, this is a truth that's been debated. It's something that hasn't been believed. It took years of study for some people to ever realize it, and it's all right here In the Word of God, very clearly stated for us, all we need to do is believe it. Righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. We have none of our own. We can never be good enough. Only Jesus can do it for us. Lord, just bless us in our understanding of your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please.